Well, a few weeks back, we began a new sermon series uh, on a New Testament book. It's the letter to the Hebrews. The writer to the Hebrews is concerned. He's concerned that these dearly loved churches uh, that he pastors and has shepherded over the years, that some members within them are drifting away from Christ. Difficulties and hardships have made it so that some have taken their eyes off of Christ. So the, the writer reminds them and us of the supremacy of Christ over all things. And this is an important point to grasp. As we often find ourselves in circumstances where we cry out, God, where are you? Don't you see where I am? Have you ever felt this way? I think we all have. So with this in mind, may we find encouragement this morning from God's word. We're in Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, going through verse 18. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a, a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children of God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he has had to, to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, then we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this word to us. It helps us to see um, the picture from the Old Testament coming into the new, that Jesus is our brother king. He is the faithful one. He is the second Adam who has lived perfectly on our behalf and died for us. Help us to process this and understand more fully what it means that Jesus is our divine brother king, we pray. Amen. Do you remember the 1992 movie, uh, A River Runs Through It? It was a huge hit, wasn't it? 
I think this movie provides a really good in, in, uh, entrance into what the writer of the Hebrews is showing us in our text. As you remember in this movie, there's two brothers, and they grow up in the beautiful countryside of Montana. Their father is a Presbyterian minister, which makes watching the movie all the more fun. Throughout this movie, we see these two boys grow into adult men. The older one is hardworking and studious. He always seems to do what is right, although the younger brother seems to suck him into all sorts of mayhem. And the younger brother, he was the good-looking, gregarious one. The glory of God was easily seen upon him as, as no one could cast a fly line like he could. Oh, the poise and the beauty. And yet, by all accounts, his life was in ruin. He was a drunkard and a gambler and a brawler. Towards the end of the movie, we see that this younger brother, Paul, immersed himself into deeper and deeper trouble, and he was finally killed in a brawl. The older brother couldn't help him. They had grown too far apart. The most tragic thing about the story is that the older brother saw what was happening to his beloved younger brother, and there was nothing he could do about it. He couldn't reach him. He couldn't come to where he was and rescue him. The passage that is before us this morning unmistakably tells us that Jesus is the brother of a much larger family, and as the elder brother, he came to where his siblings were and walked with them in the land of sin and of death and of hardship. He identified with them, and he shared in their fate, and thereby he is able to rescue them. Now, we need to hear this for a couple of reasons. For some, uh, it's our nature to say, I don't need any help. I can get by on my own. Whatever faces me, I can do it. What we need to hear this morning is that the mess that humanity finds itself in is a mess that we're powerless to extract ourselves from. And for others, like those original readers of this letter, you have trusted in Christ. You believe that he has risen and is somehow ruling over this world, and yet he can feel so distant and you can feel so alone. It's as if God really doesn't have this world under his control. Today you will be reminded that the Son of God knows your circumstances and he identifies with you and his kingdom has come and we long for it to come in its fullness. And what I hope we will see is that Jesus is our divine brother king who has delivered a wonderful victory. We're going to explore this under three headings. First we're going to look at the situation, then the solidarity, and the victory. I know that's not three S words, but that's just how it came out the situation, the solidarity, and the victory. First, the situation. A more recent movie, Don't Look Up, maybe you've seen it. Uh, it stars Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence. They are two low-level astronomers who discover that there's this giant comet heading to Earth, and it will strike Earth in six months and 14 days and will destroy all the life on the planet. The problem is, no one will take them seriously. Everywhere they go, they are mocked and ridiculed, even by the President of the United States, who is played by Meryl Streep. The President and her team comes up with this marketing plan called Don't Look Up. Their giant Don't Look Up rallies with giant Don't Look Up banners and hats. Don't look up, don't look up, don't look up. This movie does a good job parroting the human condition. 
We want good news. And if there is bad news, we don't want it to be too serious. My friends, there's a situation that confronts our world, but we don't want to look up and acknowledge it. One of the great Christian philosophers of the 20th century, Francis Schaeffer, provides a good illustration into our situation. Schaeffer called humanity a glorious ruin, and he pointed to the Parthenon in Greece. When you look at the Parthenon, what do you see? A glorious ruin. First, it's glorious. Just consider its scale and its symmetry, all the engineering and the workmanship that went into it. But it is also a ruin. It has fallen into disrepair. The columns are worn and the roof has collapsed. There is rubble lying all around the mountain. So when you see the Parthenon today, you see a glorious ruin. And Schaefer extrapolates this to our world and to humanity itself. We are glorious ruins. And the point that the writer of the Hebrews is making is that too. We see the glory in verses 6 through 8. Here the writer is quoting from that wonderful Psalm 8. In Psalm 8, King David sings uh, with joyful wonder at how human beings were made to be. He looks at the stars and, and he wonders just how on earth could God be mindful of humanity? Like, like he even cares, right? How is it possible? Surely God has greater things to concern himself with. But King David rejoices, saying, but you made him a little lower than the angels. And listen, you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Crowned with glory and honor. God made humanity far above the animals on the earth and just a little bit lower than the angels. Originally, Psalm 8 was pointing to, to the first man, Adam, and how God had crowned him with glory and honor and given him a divine mandate to represent God on earth as everything was put in subjection under his feet. Please understand it this way. God gave Adam a throne. He was to be a royal representative on God's behalf here on earth. Adam and his wife and their offspring and their offspring and their offspring. We're to be a royal family that populates the world for God's glory. They were to be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth, to create cities and culture and art and music. But the calling was to create a kingdom that honored God and that was perfect in its goodness and holiness and virtue. All of creation was to be subject to mankind's good and God-honoring rule. That's what it means by that word subjection not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But that is not how we are. We know it. The devil tempted Adam, and Adam, Adam took the bait, and he fell, and, and all of creation along with him. It's easy to see the ruin, isn't it? We can see it. We can point to it. But it's hard to accept our situation. In verse 14, we read that no longer is the world under our subjection, but what? We are under the subjection of the one who has power over death, that is, the devil. And then add to that, our situation is that, that humanity suffers from fear of death and subjection to lifelong slavery. It's unavoidable. unavoidable. We're all born this way. So simply put, 
God's enemy has brought calamity into God's good creation, and death is now our enemy. And we're born slaves to sin, and we live our lives in fear of dying, but we just don't like to admit it. Just don't look up. Don't look up. Don't look up. That's the situation. Humanity was given the world to rule as a kingdom for God's glory and for our perfect enjoyment. And yet we live in a glorious ruin, and we are glorious ruins. And the problem, because the problem lies with us, our hope can really only be found when someone comes from outside of us to rescue us. That's the situation. Now for the solidarity. Thomas More once wrote, Earth has no sorrow that heaven cannot heal. The good news of Christianity is that God's Son unites himself to our situation. So we must look up at him. See, the gospel brings a solidarity between God and man. And the solidarity manifests itself by the Son of God entering into our situation as our divine brother king to deliver us out of it and into the glory and honor that God intends for us. How so? God demonstrates his solidarity with us by sending his son to be for us, listen, a second perfect Adam. Whereas the first Adam failed, the second Adam, Jesus, triumphed for us. How do we see this? Well, first, the the writer in verse 6, he's quoting Psalm 8, which is written about the original Adam. What is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, check this out. The writer to the Hebrews takes this verse, which was originally written for the first Adam at creation, but then he says that all of this now has come true in a more spectacular way through the second Adam, Jesus. How do we know this? Well, verse 9, here's what we read. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Who is it? Namely, Jesus. (laughs) Talk about solidarity with us. Jesus, our divine brother king, the holy one who resides in glory, in a place where angels are worshiping him throughout all eternity, every hour of every day. Jesus, our divine brother king, came down to earth on our behalf. Talk about solidarity. Imagine what that must have been like for Jesus. He created all things, including the angels that are worshiping him, to leave that place, to be made lower than the angels. Think about it. What love, what what humility, right? What compassion. In solidarity with humanity, Jesus became a human. Verse 17 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, right? That's us. He himself likewise partook of the same things. (laughs) Because we are made of flesh and blood, the divine son became lower than the angels and took on flesh and blood. But not just to become a human being. He came so that he might become our brother, our elder brother. Look at the last part of verse 11. It says that, listen, he is not ashamed to call them brothers. 
that is, all who look towards Christ in faith, they become children of God. And Jesus, in a real and true sense, is our older brother. Unlike the brother in the movie A River Runs Through It who distances himself, Jesus comes in and he suffers alongside us. He unites himself to the human condition. Listen, Jesus' solidarity with us is far more than skin deep, for he shares in our suffering. Jesus suffers like his brothers and sisters, yet unlike them, he is without sin. We see this in verse 10. It says that it was fitting that he, God the Father, in order to bring many sons and daughters to glory, should make Jesus the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. I hope this becomes more and more clear to us. Jesus went to the cross as a grown man. And like you and me, he suffered in this fallen world. That's what makes him the perfect sacrifice. That's why God is able to say their salvation is made perfect through his suffering. The thing is, unlike you and me, Jesus never sinned. He never denied God. He never had just one of those days where he just gave in. He always lived for the Father's glory for you, for your sake, because he's the older brother who cares and has the power to fix it. And when he went to the cross, he had you in mind. My friends, Jesus, our divine brother, enters into solidarity with us. And this leads us to our third point, Jesus our brother king, he wins God's victory for us. It's true. Think about it. Good kings win victories for their people. The writer here makes it clear that we have a divine brother king who has won the victory. Now, in the olden days, when kings returned from battle, they would return with at least two things, spoils and stories. The spoils of victory demonstrated just who had been conquered in the stories. Well, they tell of just how the victory was won. So first, the spoils of Jesus' victory. The first spoil is that Jesus' death has disarmed the one who currently has power over this world, as the writer says, namely, the devil. Verse 14, through death he, Jesus, might destroy the one who has power of, of death, that is, the devil. Now, you may be thinking, is there really a devil? I just don't like to think that thought. Well, don't look up then, I guess, right? All right. Um, but you also might be thinking, it doesn't seem like the devil's been destroyed, for he still seems to be powerfully at work on earth. We'll understand that. That's the point that the writer is making here in verse 8, where he says, now putting everything in subjection to him, he's talking about Jesus now, he left nothing outside his control, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. The writer is telling us something that we should know is true. Everything really is under God's control. But not everything is in complete subjection yet. Christian, you know this. We live in the already, not yet. Christ and his kingdom has come in a real and true way. The spirit of God is now in you. But his kingdom has not yet fully come here, but it will one day. 
you know, Grace Church, we talk about this a lot, the, the, the already not yet reality of, of Christ and his kingdom. Christ has come already, he's won the victory over God's enemy, but the fulfillment is still not yet. And like the original audience, we need to hear this. We continue to live in a world full of sin and heartache and brokenness and sorrow and suffering, and we are not immune to it. And so we must not let our hardship cause us to doubt who we are. We are brothers and sisters of Christ the King. So let us not lose heart. Let us not turn as those Hebrews were tempted to, to, to turn to false gods to satisfy us. Let us turn to our divine brother King and see that he took on flesh and blood and he so shares in our very lives. And also think about this point of application. Because of Christ's victory here, you and I have been set free from the power of the devil over our lives. No, not that he doesn't still tempt us. No, not that we don't still at times give in to temptation. But you have been set free from his rule and his reign over you. You are not like your unbelieving neighbors who cannot help but sin. See, before coming to faith in Christ, you cannot not sin. But with the spirit of Christ dwelling in you and the grace of God upon you, you can not sin. You can honor God with your life free from the enemy's grasp. What a comforting thought today. The second spoil that Christ, our brother king, presents us with is that he delivers his people from the fear of death and of judgment. We see this in verse 14 and 15. It says that Jesus took on human flesh that he might destroy the one who has the power of death and to, quote, deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. It's true, isn't it, that we all, to a greater or lesser degree, work to suppress the reality that death is coming? Don't look up. At our core, we fear death, and that's why we work so hard at life. The writer here says, though, that our fear of death places us in a state of lifelong slavery to that fear, and it's not just a physical death. The death that is spoken of here is also a spiritual death that involves fear, that has to do with fear of punishment. But for the Christian, things are different. How so? When we read in 1 John 4, verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. My friends, that is what Christ came here to do, to perfect us in love, his love for us and our love for him. Jesus, the brother king, through his death and resurrection, delivers us from the grip of death and the fear that death brings us. Do you know this? You know this, don't you? Those are the two spoils of our brother king's victory. He has disarmed the devil and he's delivered us from the fear of death. Now for the stories of victory. When a king comes back with all of his troops uh, from battle and they ask about all that has unfolded, we get to hear some stories. And the stories that we read here are first that our brother king swallowed death. All right, what does that mean? Uh, and he did it in complete solitude. I think we know what that's like. First, Jesus swallowed death. 
Look at verse 9. It tells us that God's son left heaven and suffered death so that, what does it say? It's wonderful. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. I mean, those things don't seem like they should go together. (laughs) By the grace of God, he should taste death for everyone. What an amazing statement. Now, when we read taste death, don't wrongly conclude that Jesus just put a little drop on his tongue like some Tabasco. In the ancient Hebrew language, taste death was idiomatic speech for terrible suffering in death. That doesn't sound so good. And verse 17 tells us what that suffering was like. It says that Jesus made propitiation for the sins of his people. Now, to propitiate means to turn away God's anger and his wrath. Now, no doubt some are thinking, my God, my God would never be angry or wrathful. Please don't try to do God any favors by stripping away his anger towards sin. What kind of God wouldn't be angry at sin? But I get why you might not like it. It's because if God's angry at sin, then he's angry at my sin and your sin. And we don't like that. So let's not look up. But here's the good news. Jesus drank all of God's anger so that you need not come under it if you trust in him. A number of places in the Old Testament depict God's anger towards sinful humanity as a cup of wrath. The prophets foretell of when God will pour out his cup of wrath upon the nations that rebel against him. Our passage here says that God graciously gives our cup of wrath to his son as our substitute, and Jesus literally swallows the cup. Do you remember when Jesus told his disciples for the third time that he was going to Jerusalem to die? Remember what James and John did? Yeah, they got in a little, they pulled Jesus aside and they said, we don't care so much about these other guys, but when you come into your kingdom, can one of us sit on your right and one on your left? It really doesn't matter which side, but can we be like, can we be those people to you? And what did Jesus say to them? I remember what he says. Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. First off, you see how patient he is in understanding we're so full of ourselves as, as human beings. We, we think we can do everything. We don't need Jesus. And here's what he says. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? You know how the story goes. They go, yes, yes, we can. Yes, we can. We can drink. No, you can't. No mere human is able to drink the cup and live. Only Christ, our brother king, could do so. So our brother King swallowed death. The second part of the story is that he did it all in solitude. He was abandoned by all, even his father in heaven. Now, how do we get this? Well, verse 12, try to follow me. Verse 12 is a quote from another psalm, Psalm 22, verse 22. And in verse 11 in our passage, we read, that is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, here's verse 22 of Psalm 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Now, when Jesus or any New Testament author quotes one verse from a big passage in the Old Testament, they assume that us, the reader, knows the whole passage that they're referring to, right? 
And so what is the whole of Psalm 22? I invite you to read it. We're not going to do it now. It's quite long. But you will find that in it are details that when you look at the cross of Christ and what happened, you can see how they perfectly line up. Written a thousand years before Christ's death, you see the story of the cross in Psalm 22. And Psalm 22 opens with the words that Jesus cried out from the cross right before he died. Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Though surrounded by a crowd at death, Jesus was absolutely alone on the cross. At that moment, he was bearing the weight of the sin of all the world, and God, his Father, turned his back on him. And Jesus tasted death. He swallowed it all. Jesus was forsaken. Why? So that all who trust in him shall not be forsaken. We do not have to suffer that anger that God has towards our sin. That's what verse 17 gets at. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that, listen, he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the servant of God, as a service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So, first point of application. Jesus, our brother king, is merciful towards you and me. He is working mercifully on our behalf. He has tasted death for you. He died once and for all under the weight of your sin so that you would be spared. Listen, some of you here need to hear this loud and clear because you carry with you a lot of guilt and shame. You feel like you'll never become the good Christian, whatever that is. And so the writer to the Hebrews, if you remember, he's like a pastor writing a sermon here. He deeply cares for their souls. And he says to them and to us, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. He's not ashamed. Some of you need to press this deep into your souls. Jesus is not ashamed to be your brother king. Your feelings may tell you that Jesus is tired of your mediocre obedience. But our feelings must be controlled by the facts. And the fact is, when you do look up, you see Christ is not ashamed to be your elder brother. And he has won the victory over two of the most important realities in your life, which cause so much pain he has won a victory over the devil who seeks to lead you from God. And he has won a victory over your sin, which keeps you from peace with God. It's been done. And from this truth, we must set our hearts upon Christ. We must be those who look up. Those who look up and see Christ on his throne of glory. And, and when we do, the writer says in verse 7, we see that Jesus is what? He's a merciful and faithful I preach. This morning we've done what the writer to the Hebrews wants us to do. He wants us to look up and to see that Jesus Christ is above all things. And as he is seated up there, he is our brother, King. 
So have you looked up? Do you acknowledge that the greatest tragedy on, tragedy on earth is that sin and sorrow have corrupted God's good creation and that everyone, including you, are culpable of this great sin? Like the first Adam, you failed to display God's glory into this world. You have, and so have I. And we can't just push it aside. we got to look and honestly face this reality. That's the situation. We're glorious ruins. Glorious, yes, but ruined. Thankfully, God knows all this. He's glad to enter into solidarity with us. Listen, unlike the passionless, smirking Buddha who tells you what? That suffering is illusory? It's, it's not really there. Jesus, our brother king, left heaven and took upon himself a life of suffering for our sake. And because Jesus has taken on flesh and bone, bone, and he's endured suffering on our behalf, he knows what it's like to live amongst glorious ruins. And he has won a sure victory. And so when, with our eyes lifted up to our divine brother, King, all of life's sorrows are brought under the reign of his grace. And with Christ leading us as we walk in faith in this glorious ruin on earth, we delight that his grace is upon us. And we praise him, do we not, for his great victory. Jesus, our brother, king, has won the greatest of victories. So let us look up and behold his glory and his grace. Amen. Lord Jesus, we have a hard time processing the facts. The facts are you are not ashamed of us. You, you left heaven while we were still sinners. You came with the idea of becoming lower than the angels, of taking on flesh and blood, of, of honoring your God every day, honoring our God every day with your life. You did that for us. As an older brother cares for his brother, younger brothers and sisters, you have done that perfectly, and we praise you and give you glory. May we now lift our eyes and see you always, every day, May we, may we trust in you all the more we pray in your name. Amen.